Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. Ezra chapter 10. Uh, we began last week looking at righteousness, part, two, uh, part one, uh, and we talked about the grace of conviction. Today we're going to look at righteousness, part two, and we're going to talk about the freedom of repentance. The freedom of repentance. As I mentioned last week, Ezra chapter 10 and chapter 9 are really one episode that should be considered all together, but for the sake of time, uh, I'm breaking them apart. So we're continuing what we began last week in a very real sense. I want to read the first eight verses for us before we continue with our message. Let's go to the word. Ezra 10, beginning in verse 1. While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, of the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra. We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God. And let it be done according to the law. Arise, for it is your task, and we are with you. Be strong and do it. Then Ezra arose and made the leading priests and Levites in all Israel take an oath that they would do as had been said. So they took the oath. Then Ezra withdrew from before the house of God and went to the chamber of Johanan, the son of Eliashib, where he spent the night neither eating bread nor drinking water, for he was mourning over the faithlessness of the exiles. And a proclamation was made throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the returned exiles that they should assemble at Jerusalem and that if anyone did not come within three days by order of the officials and the elders, all his property should be forfeited and he himself banned from the congregation of the exiles. May God bless the reading, the hearing, the understanding, and the obeying of his word today. Ezra is still under heavy conviction when we come into chapter 10, the way we left him in chapter 9. But at this point, the people of the congregation or the exiles are beginning to rally around him in their own conviction. They're joining him in this. And Shechaniah steps up and makes a corporate confession for the people. And his representation is that this is the general consensus of those who are gathering around Ezra. But notice, their conviction of sin does not leave them without hope, not even in their confession. For godly conviction gives hope to address sin through repentance, by turning away from sin and walking in righteousness through obedience. But no deed was done lightly in this passage. That's what we see. While Ezra's immediate response was to withdraw in more prayer and fasting for the people, the people were continuing to assemble. They were coming together, and their coming together was a corporate out, outpouring of the conviction that they were individually under. And the conviction that began with one man had now spread throughout the people, and their actions of repentance must be taken. 
Now, if we were to continue reading in verses 9 through 17, we begin to see them confess a corporate recognition of their guilt. It's made by the people in accordance with the leadership that they have been given, and they agree on the steps for repentance. Yes, their agreement is not just with one another, but what I mean by that is they agree with God what God has said about their deeds and how it is wrong in his eyes and the right steps that they must take according to his law. There are some that rise up in disagreement, but it is a minimal amount and they do not hold an influence among the whole congregation. And so it tells us Ezra sits down with the leaders to determine all who are involved. And I want to show you the extensive nature of the involvement here. So verses 1 through 17 of chapter 10 introduce us to the conviction that spread throughout the whole congregation, how they were coming together, they agreed upon a plan for a repentance and redemption. But verse 18 through verse 44 lists all those who are guilty of the intermarriage uh, that has occurred. And so these were people who had built their whole life around their sin. And they had ignored it until now. But this list reminds us, even when ignored, for some of these for generations, it will not be hidden nor ignored forever. What I want you to see today in this message is this. God leads us through repentance that we might walk in right relationship with him and bear a faithful witness of him to the world. God leads us through repentance that we might walk in right relationship with him and bear a faithful witness in the world. Now, before we move forward with this message today, there is an issue that is glaring in this passage that I need to address. It's an issue we need to deal with before we get to what I'll call the heart of this passage, and it is simply this. They agree to put away their wives. They agree to divorce their wives. And immediately that should cause us to pause and ask, how is it that we make sense of what we know to be outside God's desire for marriage that occurs in this text? Or more simply put, why is it acceptable for them to divorce their wives in this context? So this is the issue I want to address briefly before we continue. I address the question to acknowledge it but not to spend too much time on it. And I will reason with you for that. The action causes us to pause and act. But there's no pause for the Israelites. Notice this. The law and the understanding of even the New Testament teaching about marriage and divorce is the same. They are not two different teachings. So the Israelites are approaching this with the same understanding, albeit maybe not as uh, uh, definitively given to them as we have it causing into the New Testament, but their understanding is not slight on this. Be careful that you don't give them a pass on that. But the action, what we take away from this passage with the lack of pause of the Israelites, that the action is, is not what forms the central message or the theme of this passage. For, for us to think that that's the whole issue that we need to deal with here is for us to impose our own understanding on the text. And that's eisegesis. That's putting our meaning on the text that we want to give to it instead of exegesis, drawing out what the text is saying to us. 
And so in explaining their actions, let me offer to you from a biblical perspective two parameters for our understanding and a very concise conclusion so that we can continue today. If you're saying, why are you doing this? Because we're committed to that roof not coming off right now. That's what we're committed to. Summer has arrived. All right, here we go. We are committed, again, where am I at? We are committed to the whole counsel of God's word. That means by faith and what we believe about the Bible, we don't skip over the hard passages, but we do our best to understand them in light of the whole counsel of God. And applying that by faith to every time we come. We want to give it an appropriate amount of time, but not elongate it, but surely not to ignore it either. Two parameters that help our understanding. The first parameter is this. To begin with, these marriages broke faith with God. And this was a pattern that was unaddressed. Not in these people only, but for generations among the exiles, among the Israelites. The main problem that they are addressing in chapters 9 and 10 is that the Israelites had perverted their worship by their marriages. They had perverted, forsaken God by their marriage. You said, but aren't they doing a lot of stuff for God? But listen, friends, no amount of good deeds overwhelms or erases your sin. Remember that. Who are the wives? We looked at it last week. The wives were unbelieving foreigners that maintained other religions and raised their children in worship of other gods. So they broke faith with God in two ways, not only in their marriage, but also in the rearing of their children, in the way that they raised their children. The second parameter for understanding that frames the situation is that marriage in their day is not identical to marriage today. The relationship is still a covenant relationship given under God, just as we see in Genesis chapter 2. That doesn't change. But the way they used marriage in this day is not identical to what we as Christians understand marriage to be. Many were nothing, or many of the marriages were nothing simply more than business arrangements that afforded more pleasure or prosperity rather than the priority of the home. One commentator says it this way, we cannot relate to what transpires because we have no comparative analogy of their situation. What was their situation? God commanded them when they came out of Egypt, before they crossed into the promised land, God commanded them, do not intermarry with these people. And he made a list of them. As a matter of fact, the echo, the repeating of that list was given just a couple of chapters before in the book of Ezra. Why? Because Ezra is showing them how God had said it generations, hundreds of years before. And it was broken when they came into the land and it had remained broken. They had never addressed the sin of intermarriage. This is something that, that was transpiring for generations now, we do know this. This is not about intermarrying just between ethnicities or races or even nationalities. That's not the issue here. We've already shown last week that that is a biblical practice when it honors the Lord and done in the right way. 
So we're not talking about that. Don't convolute the two things. But what we are talking about is that these marriages that they identify here not only convoluted, but perverted their worship. They said things about God that were not true. They said things about those who were not gods to be equal with God. And they were done out of a lack of faith to begin with. Nothing about these marriages honored God. That's what we should understand. And we should be clear that this is in no way a casual acceptance of divorce if everything doesn't work out. Irreconcilable differences of today. This is not in any way, uh, an affirmation of the acceptability of that. Jesus teaches on divorce in the New Testament. Paul writes extensively on divorce. And we know, friends, we know how God feels and we understand what the scriptures teach about divorce. And so this is not legitimizing nor validating the modern rationales that are easily accepted today. Here's what we can confidently say about this passage, and this is my summation. Nothing taught nor shared here contradicts in any way, shape, form, or manner the scriptural teaching about marriage and divorce. Okay? So it's, it's, it's as the commentator said, it's a whole other scenario that only has a very very small, faint likeness to our understanding. And that's how we need to understand what is taking place here. What we must take away from this passage, though, is the seriousness of sin among God's people and the need for real action in repentance. And so that's where we're going to turn our attention today for the remainder of our time. I want to tell you a story to begin, kind of reframe our mind for the message this morning. When I was a, a boy, eight, nine years old, occasionally I would go stay with my aunt who lived in the same small town. And uh, I don't know if my mother was working or if she was running errands or whatever, but evidently she did that better without me than with me, you know, on times. Can't imagine. I was so effective at picking out what we needed in the grocery store, specifically on the chip and cookie aisle. And I was staying with my aunt and, and I had been told in front of my aunt's house, there was this beautiful sidewalk for riding that banana-seated uh, high-handled bar bike that I had gotten for Christmas. And, and I could cruise on it all day long. But, but there was a place where God, by his providential work, had used the roots of a tree to raise the sidewalk perfectly for a bicycle ramp. Now, I know kids that ride bikes today, you know, like they're perfectly tuned. That's not a bicycle of the 70s, right? Like those things weighed 150 pounds. You could have anchored a house to them. They were so incompetent for anything other than slow cruising. But when I saw this, I, I was captured by it. And, and I was told under no circumstances, son, are you to ride your bike in a fast manner so as to leave the ground and jump over this concrete. Do not do it. Do not do it, you say. And immediately something else is triggered in my heart. Do it, Lane, do it. And so guess what Lane did? At the turning away of their protective eye, Lane mounted up, sped quickly down the sidewalk and launched from that piece of sidewalk and concrete. The problem was Lane was inadequately prepared and the jump was far superior to the landing. 
I stuck it all right. I just wasn't still on the bike when it happened. And I slid quite a ways and from my ankle to somewhere around my shoulder neck, that area, there were a number of, shall we say, problems that arose with the tearing of clothes and the bleeding and those kinds of things. I limped back up to my aunt's house, knocked on the front door, and when she opened the door, there was a shrill of shock. What has happened? And it scared her, and her being scared scared me. And being scared, immediately fear rose up, and I said, well, that bully across the street threw me off of my bike. And I'm sure there was more elaboration on the story that helped it to be, you know, sold adequately. And so my parents picked me up that day. She treated my wounds, and we spoke a few moments about how horrible that bully across the street was and she's a good mind to march over there and pull him out into the middle of the street and exact a little justice right here and I said no 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 Aunt Mary we should be gracious in forgiving people let's not go over to his house and get him more involved than he already is well my parents picked me up that afternoon and initially they felt sorry for me but I feel they probably suspected something more than the story had relayed And within a couple of days, the truth had come out. They had pressured me, um, you know, from within. And I had to tell them the truth. I could live under the lie no longer. And so uh, we had some deep bonding time, my father and I. Pressure applied, heat develops, and you bond with one another. That's how you bond things, right? And um, that was only the initial phase of repentance He took me in the car back over to my aunt's house where I had to knock on her front door and tell her what I had done. That was not easy. That was very difficult. But Aunt Mary, she's a great lover of Lane. She forgave me immediately. Everything was okay. And then my father turned me on that front porch. We walked down those steps Across the street, jaywalking nonetheless. And I was very embarrassed that my father would jaywalk across the street. We made a straight line to the bully's house. And I had to knock on the door. He answered the door with a puzzled look. And he said, yes. And I had to tell him what I had done and ask him to forgive me for blaming him. And he looked at me like, That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. That's the last thing I remember. I never went anywhere near him again. I was so embarrassed. Let's get in the car and go home, Daddy. And that's what we did. Christians are called to be people of repentance. That was a very hard day in my life. But I'm telling you, as a slightly older man now, from that age, I mean, I remember that day with a crystal clarity because of what it provided for me. Last week, we saw how God brings conviction to lead and to guide us in repentance. And this week, we see how repentance turns us to God to walk in obedience by real, concrete actions. Friends, conviction grows until repentance is practiced. Burying your sin will never snuff it out. It will only increase it. And repentance will always bring freedom from sin's slavery. You know, often repentance is misunderstood and and sometimes mishandled. 
Uh, it, it makes us think that we can make other arrangements with God, but, but we must act in accordance to his word, not only in confessing what true sin is and our conviction, but also working out the repentance that he leads us to do. Repentance is not just merely doing the right thing or making the right decision instead of the wrong. Repentance is the work of redemption that turns us away from sin and turns us to Christ. And that's why Paul says in Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 1.9, he gives this, this very practical definition of repentance. We turn from idols to serve the true and living God. And that is never more true than when our repentance has real practical actions associated with it. You see, repentance puts us in right relationship with God. It puts us in right relationship with ourself. It puts us in right relationship with other people. It puts us in right relationship with the world. When we confess that God is right and God is just, that we have sinned against God and that we have received his forgiveness and his cleansing through Jesus to be able to walk in obedience. Now, I want us to look at six aspects of biblical repentance this morning to help us understand how it is that we should respond in our conviction as God leads us through repentance to God's freedom. God's freedom. Aspect number one is this. In biblical repentance, people are included. People are included. If you look in Ezra chapter 10, verses 1 through 5, and then in verse 16, we see that the people are coming and gathering. They are assembling. Other people are included in our repentance. This was not just an individual repentance that had taken place among the people because we see there is an individual ownership of it. But there is a congregational, there's a corporate aspect to this inclusion. That's what we're learning from Ezra. And it begins with the spiritual leaders and it begins with the heads of homes. You see, repentance always includes others, not because it depends upon them, but hear me, but because our sin and our process of redemption always includes or affects them in some way. What other people does it include? Well, it includes those that are involved in the sin with us. It includes others that are involved in the sin that maybe were included with us. I can tell you as a child, my mother could list by the sin committed, she could tell you who I was with when it happened. I, mean, I don't know how she knew that, the eyes in her back of her head or that motherly intuition or whatever it was, but she could nail it every time with the smallest amount of evidence. There are oftentimes others that are included with us in our sin. But if not that, and we addressed this last week too, there are always others affected by our sin and they will be in involved in our repentance as way. Either way, others are involved and must be included. You see, a Christian's responsibility is to labor for redemption through gospel repentance by pursuing people to acknowledge and confess our sin, those who were included in our sin. So if we committed the sin with someone else, we're confessing to them that we're convicted of that sin and that very testimony itself may be the very spark that God uses by his spirit to convict them. Or we go to someone whom we sinned against and we confess and ask for their forgiveness. That's the second aspect, those who are affected by our sin. 
The second part of this, uh, of those who are included, is not just those who are involved in the sin, but those who are with us in redemption labors. So often our sin and our trying to figure out how we work out of the shame and guilt, we try to figure out how to do it alone, flying solo. But this is not true. Ezra didn't say, you people have all sinned, you're wrong in this, and just stand in his righteous judgment of them. But he went into prayer and fasting to let the Spirit of God begin to bring conviction upon the individuals of God's people that were guilty in the midst of it. And there are those that are with us in redemption labors. Not every one of the exiles was involved in the sin, but they were included because of their corporate identity. In other words, they were willing to take responsibility to the extent that they could in order to enter into redemptive labors to encourage and and celebrate the fact that some people were being obedient to God. They wanted to be a part of that redemptive process. It's the life of the church. It's one of the most difficult and encouraging factors in repentance. And that God's people are to be a help and an encouragement in order for his people to practice full repentance, verse 5, for his people to be able to provide accountability, verse 16, and to confirm with us when it is done, verse 16. Too often we fly solo, we'll short circuit. And we'll stop short of the full measure of what God is leading us in. So it, it may create the question in you, well, how many people should be involved in my repentance? I think that's a good question. And let me say this. Here's a principle to guide you in how many people should be involved in your, in your repentance. The scope of the involvement in repentance should be equal and proportionate to the scope of inclusion in the committal of sin. Those involved in the commitment of the sin or affected by it should be involved in the act of repentance. Involving more outside of just this principle almost always leads to the committing of more sin by gossip and slander. When you bring people into the process that were neither a part of it nor affected by it, with one exception, when a third party is brought in to help mediate depending on the situation, but another person should never be brought in to medicate hurt feelings nor to medicate soul embarrassment in the midst of that. We need to trust in Christ for all of that. So the first aspect of biblical repentance is that people are included. The second aspect of biblical repentance is that there is a price that has to be paid. We see this doubly so in this passage. There is a price that has to be paid First of all, there's a price for refusing to participate. If you refuse to acknowledge your sin and participate with the people, you lose everything. That's what verse 6 says, that that you will take an oath and and, and that you will uh, lose all of your inheritance and your possessions in the midst of that. And so we see that by this participation and the price that is to be paid, the importance of the practice. You say, how in the world does that remind us to strip someone of everything? How does that remind us of anything to do with the gospel? It reminds us of the ultimate price of sin. For the wages of sin is what? You lose it all. You die physically. You die spiritually. It's the ultimate loss. 
And it reminds us the highest price had to be paid for the one, or the highest price will be paid by the one who will not repent. And there are two main costs that we incur when we refuse to repent. First of all, you continue to carry the shame and the guilt of your own sin. And when you refuse to repent, it hardens you to the Spirit's continued work in you. When we refuse and neglect to repent, we deny the work of Christ for us and we quench the work of the Holy Spirit in us. But friends, listen, that's not the only price to be paid. There's also a price for faithfully following through. And that's what we see in verses 18 and 19 in their conclusion. Even in repentance, trusting the ultimate Christ that the ultimate price that Christ has paid for us, there is always a price we pay in the here and now. We know them as consequences. Sometimes in relationships, sometimes in payment for damage, sometimes in our own suffering and our own wounds and scars because of what we inflicted. When I repented to my aunt and to the bully across the street, I still had to bear the scars and the, the scabs from my own decision. And we will as well. Maybe one of the biggest prices we pay, though, as we follow faithfully in repentance is simply the embarrassment of our pride. That can be a very high cost for us. But listen, when pride gets hurt in repentance, it's always because humility got practiced. And that's a godly godly practice. Repentance doesn't excuse us from consequences. It leads us through and uses them to redeem us. The third aspect of biblical repentance is that there is always a specific purpose to repentance. This is not meaningless religious ritual. There is a purpose to repentance that leads to redemption. Ezra identifies the specific sins of the people and then we see the people taking their own responsibility for those sins. They're not just taking Ezra's word for it. They're confessing that their own heart is convicted by the Spirit of God. You see, repentance clarifies what has taken place in our life as an expression of conviction. We see that in verses 10 and 11. This isn't just something, man, some of you people have really messed up. That's not what they're saying. I have done wrong. This is their expression of conviction that is leading them to repentance. And the specific detail that comes through confession, or excuse me, conviction and repentance, that specific detail informs how we are to labor for our own redemption in the process of repentance. How we are to labor for our own redemption in the process of repentance. God is gracious to grant us specific detail in repentance so that we come to know what it is that is being taken off of us by his forgiveness and cleansing, but also even more, friends, listen, through the process of repentance that leads us to God's full redemption is to learn what it is that is going on within us that leads to the temptation and ultimately into the sin that we're walking into. No one falls into sin. There is always a decisive moment of choice when you choose it. Don't be deceived by sin to think, man, I just, I, there it was, I couldn't do anything about it. 
That's a denial of the counsel of God's word that said God never leads anyone into sin. There's, there's no sin or transgression that is rooted or comes from the heart of God that every time you are tempted, no matter what it is, God always provides a way out if by eyes of faith you're looking for it. Don't ever blame your sin on God nor your temptation. It's not his, it's yours. And if you won't own that, you're saying no to his full work in you. In repentance, we bear responsibility for our sin. We don't blame others. We want to blame others. We refuse to blame others. Verse 12, verse 12. When we bear responsibility, then then we know Christ has forgiven us for that sin. And we do not carry the shame and the guilt of that sin anymore. But listen, when we do not admit our sin, it cannot be atoned in us. Repenting also of unnamed sin is, as I will say, useless and ineffective as, hear me out, unspoken, unnamed prayer requests. Repenting of unnamed sin, just going, God, forgive me, is as useless and as ineffective as unnamed prayer requests. Now, let me qualify this a little bit because I'm not wiping the slate clean on both of those completely. But what I'm trying to do is stop you from an easy out to subvert your repentant and redeeming process. Very seldom do they have any good purpose and often they breed false piety and pretentious recklessness in us to quickly dismiss the full redemptive process of repentance that God has for us. But I'll qualify him for this. There are times when an unnamed, unaddressed prayer request is legitimate. There are times when this is right, when you are in a setting or a circumstance that can't be fully details or even the identifying of it can't be fully provided in that moment or as of yet, or with wisdom it would say, don't share the fullness of it for this time. I'm not saying that's useless. I'll say this, keep that in your prayer petition arsenal, but use it sparingly. Most of the time when we offer a prayer request, we need to be able to name it, we need to be able to identify it, and give as much information as is appropriate for it so those who we are requesting prayer from can be specific in their petition for us. When it comes to confessing sin and repenting of that, there are times as well when it is inappropriate for us to name it and to discuss it or to divulge it. It may be because of the circumstances. It may be because of who we are with. And it may be because of the situation that continues ongoing. But that is extremely rare. Extremely rare. Because God doesn't call us to get up and air our dirty laundry haphazardly. That's not happening. And that's the very excuse that many people go with that. And when they say, well, I don't want to do that, so I'll just do this. Well, you're looking at two ends of a spectrum that neither one are correct. When God says confess your sins to one another, he's not having Christians do open mic night. 
I'm not saying there's not a time for public confession of sin, but I'm saying the regular practice that James is teaching us is to have people so close to our life that they probably know it before we acknowledge it, but we ought to be regularly confessing it to them so that they can be laboring for our redemption with us. I hope I've qualified that enough. I've got to move on. This is the one place in Scripture where I will lighten the mood for just a moment, okay? Where name it and claim it theology is actually something you ought to be full-scale participating in. You say, what are you talking about, pastor? I'm talking about this. Jesus died for your sin. You need to name what it is. You need to confess that it is yours. You need to own it and take responsibility for it and repent so God can get it off of you. Now, there's no other situation where name it and claim it theology is of any value nor good for your life and is not taught in Scripture anywhere else. Your sin is the only part of your salvation that you bring to the table. Everything else is from God. So conviction shows the people, the price, the purpose of sin, and also reveals the process that we need to walk through for redemption. So we come to the fourth aspect, and it's this. In biblical repentance, there is a process that must be endured. A process that must be endured. I'm telling you, that drive to my aunt's house that day was the longest drive of my life. But the drive in leaving it was the shortest. Repentance follows the same steps, typically, that are taken in committing the sin, but often in the reverse So repentance redeems sin's effects. You can't always undo every aspect of it in this world, but God, by his divine providence, will redeem every aspect of it. But if you shortcut a part, the process cannot be complete, and you're going to be the one that suffers and those who are affected or participated in it. You see, the process of repentance will also be proportionate to the time, to the depth, the kind, and the degree of sin that was involved in the committal of it. Too often, we just want everything to go away. And so as a substitute for practicing the gospel in our repentance, we just try to place life over it. Well, I've got a new direction here. I'm making a commitment. We're going to walk in a new way. We're going to walk in a new direction. And God's going to be blessing us in this. And we, we do more to ignore our sin by going, I'm going to follow Jesus this time. But that is an exertion of the will, not a surrender to the Spirit of God. And that won't get us any further and will bring us right back to the same place as if we're walking in circles in the woods, lost, lost. He doesn't call us in life to place his righteousness and our good deeds on top to bury our sins. He calls us to repent that we might put on the person of Christ and the righteousness that he died to give us. If we must die with Christ for the power of his resurrection life to be experienced, then we must die to self in the way we follow Christ with our life. And the process often involves making relationships right first with God, but also with others. So we can be a blessing and a faithful witness. The process takes time. The process requires patience with others as we wait for forgiveness, if it ever comes. But we do not demand it. 
And it requires us to be even patient with ourselves as we are growing and maturing and to not lose hope, to not lose hope because of the process. You see, friends, repentance is not a quick fix. It is a laboring for godly redemption. And always exactly what to do is not always clear. It may be difficult to, to follow up and contact a person that you haven't seen in some time. Or maybe, maybe for some, that person is deceased. It's deceased. Maybe you're unsure of how to approach or what to say. And, and, and most of all, if you go to this person, you go, well, I don't have any control over how they'll respond. The good news is you don't have to. You're not supposed to. And you shouldn't try to. And you shouldn't cower your repentance and confession to them in the way that you presuppose they will respond to it. You always confess in accordance to God's conviction by his Holy Spirit according to his word. So the principle is that our forgiveness and repentance is on you. And if we are to see reconciliation, that will require two, both. Trust God, what he is leading you to do. Give grace to others in response and leave the rest up to him. Aspect number five, in biblical repentance, there will be pain involved. There will be pain involved. Verses three and verse 11 represent this to us. There is pain that we will have to endure. Some want to bail before the heartache sets in. They think their mourning is enough and they shouldn't have to bear any more. These are also the people who believe that their feeling guilty over sin is sufficient instead of having a godly grief that leads them to repentance. When you hit the nerve of your sin, it will be the most acute pain in the process Not always physically, though sometimes, but definitely spiritually and very likely emotionally. But until you get here, you can't have your sin redeemed by God. Our pain reminds us of what Christ atoned for us. The pain in the process of redemption through repentance is a pain that reminds us of the ultimate enduring that Christ suffered for us when he chose not to forego or come down from the cross. And we must remember by the pain involved, God is in the midst of this. He is working. There is pain that we may inflict on others. Your repentance will often be painful to other people. Many don't want to think that inflicting pain in some way can in any way be redemptive. But friends, pain comes not from the act of repentance. Pain comes from the sin we're repenting of and represents that. And it demonstrates how painful and destructive our sin really is to us and to others. We may not like it, but sometimes surgery is necessary for the brokenness of our bodies. And surgery itself has a lot of pain associated with it, but enduring the pain of surgery leads us through the healing to the brokenness that comes. And there is no Novocaine for the soul, only grace from God that comforts and restores. The pain does not mean it's not healthy. It does not mean it's right, and it does not mean we should stop. The pain of repentance is minor in comparison, but reminds us of the true destruction of all sin as it steals, as it kills, and destroys. 
The sixth aspect in biblical repentance is this. The prize is worth the labor. The prize is worth the labor. Until we learn to practice repentance, we'll never experience the freedom that Christ died to give us. Repentance brings freedom that releases us from sin's power over us. Then, when redeemed, there's no more shame. There's no more condemnation that remains upon us. The weight is gone. We've taken on the yoke of Christ that is light and easy. That's why Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 17, uh, to, uh, 7, 10, excuse me, there is a godly grief that produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Without regret. Until one has repented, we cannot say that that faith is present because faith is only verified by our obedience. But what we can say is when we do repent, God always forgives and cleanses and restores the joy of his spirit. Here's the promise of biblical repentance. The gospel tells us that we can follow all the way through the spirit's work in us because Christ has already finished the work for us on the cross. Christ endured the cross that he might conquer the tomb. And when we follow God by his spirit through the counsel of his word into repentance, we have the light of the empty tomb before us, promising us. God leads us through repentance that we might walk in right relationship with him and bear a faithful witness in the world. You know, the Israelites had been led through some really really hard times. But at the end of chapter 10, and of course the book of Nehemiah goes on to tell more of their story because there is more. This is not the end. In many ways, it's just the beginning of how God wanted to use them as he expanded their influence. But it tells us this one glory. They were close to God. And that's what mattered to them most. Would you bow your head and close your eyes with me? Friends, I know a message like this can be very difficult and hard, can be very heavy and overwhelming. And so I'm praying right now that the Spirit of God, who is the one who's doing that work of conviction and leading you towards that process of repentance, will minister grace and comfort not to give you a way out, but to give you a hope to follow Him through. And that's what God wants for you today, friends. This is not unclear. This is not in any way uh, um, um, uh, just one option of many. But God is offering you today a full redemption by the conviction and the repentance of His Spirit if you'll trust Him and if you'll follow Him. You won't carry the weight of your sin anymore. You won't carry the shame and the guilt of it. And when you're reminded of it by the evil one, the glorious light of God's truth will pour into your heart and soul and remind you of the freedom and the cleansing that he's given to you. Don't you want that today, friends?